Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled The Temptation and will come from the book of Matthew chapter 4. If you tuned into the broadcast last week, you know that our subject was the forces of darkness The fact that around us at all times there are invisible forces of darkness in the world that are attempting to wage war against the people of God. Now, as we emphasized last week, there's absolutely no way that God loses this battle. God is sovereign. Jesus has sovereign control over the devils. Rather than attempting to thwart him or fight him, In his personal ministry, every time Jesus was in the presence of devils or evil spirits or demons, they beg for mercy because they know that God is sovereign and that Jesus is their Lord, that he can judge them and destroy them at any moment. As we brought that message on the forces of darkness to a conclusion, we considered some things that you and I can do as we live in a world where devils and spirits assault God's people, it's, number one, helpful for us to understand that while we can't cast devils out of people because we don't have apostolic authority or power, we can pray to God, the one who can cast devils out of people and protect us from the forces of evil. At the same time, we have at our disposal as a part of the armor of God, an offensive weapon that we can use in this battle between dark forces in the world. And that offensive weapon is none other than the Word of God. We have the Bible. We have the Scriptures given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. This inspired Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures, these are our weapon in this warfare. As we studied last week together, the armor of God, just to remind you of that, this armor, this way of arming ourselves for defense, but also offense, is described as girding our loins with truth, wearing the breastplate of righteousness, having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, and taking the shield of faith wherewith we shall be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, putting on the helmet of salvation, and lastly grabbing the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the picture there is of a soldier with his feet dug down into the soil, with that shield up and that sword raised. He is praying with all prayer. He's giving supplication for the saints, and he's watching with all perseverance as he prays for the saints. That's an excellent description of the child of God who is following Jesus, attempting to stand in the evil day. Well, as you notice, that weapon that we read about in Ephesians chapter 6, that famous and edifying passage about the armor of God, that weapon that we take is the Bible, the Word of God. Today, I want to direct you to the book of Matthew chapter 5, to the time in Jesus' ministry directly after his baptism and before he began all of his work in the world in his personal ministry. 
he faced off with that wicked one. He faced the forces of darkness, as it were, in the wilderness, and he was victorious. But what we can study from this will show us the value of the Word of God as that sword, that offensive weapon that we can use against the forces of darkness that are so at work in the world today. I'll also say up front that we recently delivered a full-length message about this particular passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 4 at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. You can find that message on our church Facebook page or the MarchToZion.com YouTube channel. As we turn to Matthew chapter 4, we'll say just a little bit about the backstory of this passage. Jesus was about 30 years of age here. He was born shortly after his cousin John the Baptist was born. And he waited until John began his personal ministry to present himself, as it were. And by that, I mean take the stage as the Messiah and begin his personal ministry. This would culminate his personal ministry, that is, in his crucifixion and the salvation of his people, something that would be proven completely successful and effective by his resurrection from the dead. Directly after Jesus' baptism, as we read in chapter 4 and verse 1, Jesus is led in the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. We read this in Matthew 4, 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. As a last word up front, in this story, we see Jesus confronted by that wicked one three different times, and The wicked one would try to tempt Jesus in three different ways. He would at times use the Word of God and twist the Word of God in attempt to cause Jesus to fall and to do that which would be displeasing to his Father. But in all of these temptations, Jesus is completely victorious. In this story, we see the impeccability of Christ on display. What do I mean by the impeccability of Christ? The impeccability of Christ asserts that Jesus is completely unable to sin. Jesus was not subject to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That threefold description of sin, which we will come back to in a moment, is found in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, and it basically describes the ways that sin manifests itself in our personal lives. Jesus was not susceptible to this. Number one, Jesus was not susceptible to this in his humanity because he had no nature of sin because he was virgin-born. Jesus was unlike any other human being who has ever lived because he did not possess at any time ever the nature of sin. And so in his humanity, his humanity was completely perfect and upright, without spot, without blemish. And number two, Jesus is impeccable because he's God incarnate and God cannot sin. James chapter 1 says that God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. God neither tempts nor can God be tempted. And so since Jesus is God incarnate, Jesus cannot be tempted with sin. Jesus cannot do evil. Jesus cannot sin, both in his perfect humanity and 
his perfect deity, combined together in what we call the hypostatic union, the fact that Jesus was virally God and virally man, that he was 100% God, he was 100% man, he was completely God, he was completely man, and in his humanity and his deity, we find perfection. This perfection insists that he is unable to be corrupted. Though he were tempted in all points, like as are we yet without sin, Jesus was impossible to corrupt. He was impossible to lead astray. He was impossible to tempt. And again, this doctrine is one we refer to as the impeccability of Christ. That is to say, Jesus is impeccable. Now, there was a point of view in the early centuries of church history that denied the impeccability of Christ, this perspective, this doctrine, this faction within Christianity would be known as Arianism. And Arians followed the teachings of Arius, a terrible heretical figure. By God's providence, the heretics lost that battle. Those who were orthodox on the Trinity prevailed. Those who were orthodox on the deity of Christ prevailed. And this doctrine of the impeccability of Christ has not been contested to that degree since. We see in this story the impeccability of Christ on display. Again, as we said, he is unable to sin. He will not choose to do that which is evil, even in a period of fasting where, from his flesh's perspective— From the perspective of hunger and fatigue and need, Jesus is unable to do that which is wrong. Jesus is incorruptible. Verse 1, to read this just again, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The first thing I want to point out is that Jesus is led of the Spirit into the wilderness for this showdown. This means that the encounter between Jesus and this wicked one here, Satan, was no coincidence, but God orchestrated this battle for the purpose of his son's victory and glory. Jesus had just begun his ministry and now would have a battle. Luke adds that Jesus was filled with the Holy Ghost and went up to the wilderness after leaving Jordan, Jordan again being the place where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Now, just a little bit of a note on this particular wilderness, culturally, this wilderness was viewed as a place inhabited by angels and devils, or demons. Now, does that mean that it's true that this wilderness was inhabited by angels and devils? No, it certainly does not mean that that's true, but that was a little bit of a folklore among Jews in the first century. That was one of their legends. That was one of their superstitions, or urban legends, I should say. And as far as the specific location of this wilderness, it is believed to be the wilderness between Jerusalem and Jericho. Now, Joel Beakey drew a parallel in his commentary with Israel being led in the wilderness after crossing the Red Sea and before entering into Canaan's land. And the beautiful thing about that, if this is to somehow hail back to that, the Jews failed in the wilderness. They failed as they left the Red Sea in unbelief. They felt a temptation, and because of that, they couldn't enter into Canaan's land. But Jesus, unlike Israel, Jesus doesn't fall to temptation, and because of that, he carries us into Canaan's land. That's a beautiful picture if you think on it. 
Now, as far as temptation, we have to work out a little bit of a problem here because Jesus is God incarnate. God never tempts anyone, and yet Jesus was led of the Spirit here. And at the same time, God cannot be tempted with evil, and Jesus is God incarnate. How are we to resolve that? The word tempt in James 1 means to solicit someone with sin. At the same time, the word tempt can mean to test. God never solicits us to do that which is evil, but God does test us. As his children, the way that God tests us is by giving us a commandment and then watching to see if we obey the commandment. That's the pattern when the Lord tempted, as it were, Abraham in the book of Genesis, as God told him to go offer his son Isaac, and then as Abraham was obeying that command, God stopped him, provided a ram for the offering, and confirmed his promises to Abraham and his lineage to Isaac and eventually to Jacob. God tests us, but God never tempts us. At the same time, when you and I say, I was tempted to do something that is wrong, that word tempt often carries the connotation of desire. If you say, I was tempted to have a very sweet midnight snack last night, and either you gave into it or you didn't give into it, you mean by that word tempted that you desired to do it. It's very important for us to understand that Jesus does not desire to do that which is wrong. To desire to do that which is wrong is actually sin in and of itself, because to desire something that is wrong is to covet that. And to covet is to lust, and to covet is to sin. How Jesus is tempted here is that Satan solicits him as a person— with that which was wrong, but I remind you that Jesus is impeccable. He was not subject to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and so he never desired to do that which was sinful. That's why when you have references to this in the book of Hebrews, we read that Jesus was tempted in all points like as are we, yet what? Yet without sin. And so Jesus never desired to do that which was wrong, Satan merely solicits him with that, but Jesus will not yield because he had no sinful nature. As far as the rest of us and our temptations, we are tempted by the tempter and his forces. That's what Satan is referred to as in this chapter. But as we quoted earlier from James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, we are tempted as we are drawn away of our own lust and enticed. Now, In our personal lives, sin manifests itself in three basic areas, the lust of the flesh, what our flesh desires to do, the lust of the eyes, the things that we see and that we want, things that we might consider to be treasures for us, and number three, the pride of life, self-exaltation, insatiable ambition, luxury, boasting, etc. Did you notice in two of those the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, you have the concept of lust, desiring something, that is often what is connected in our lives with being tempted. But I remind you that Jesus has no lust. He is not subject to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so when Satan solicits him, he is completely and totally uninterested in these propositions. 
Now, to continue setting up the context, when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. 40 days is about as long as a person can go without eating food before they die, before they are so weak and malnourished that their life could come to an end. We can't go that long without water, but this is Jesus fasting from food for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's after hungry. He's after and hungered. Now, there's an interesting point to be made out of this. Jesus still had to live within the constraints of a human body, generally speaking. And so when he was hungry, he had to eat. When he was thirsty, he had to drink. There are times when Jesus would sleep. He had to trim his beard and his fingernails and his hair like all of us because he was made like unto his brethren. He was a human being in all points with that one exception of sin. And so as it comes to the end of this 40-day period, Jesus is hungry, and he has to get food. His life depends on it. And that is when Satan shows up to tempt him, to solicit him. Verses 3 and 4 give us the first temptation of Christ. And what Satan does here, he capitalizes on Jesus' situation. He capitalizes on Jesus' hunger. The tempter comes to him and says, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, I remind you of what we discussed last week regarding the devils believing and trembling. Satan knows that this is the Son of God. He knows that this is Jesus. He already tried to have Christ murdered by Herod when Christ was born into the world, causing Joseph and Mary to flee into Egypt. But you also have to remember that Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies, and he's a murderer from the beginning of time. And so Satan is deceitful here. He's lying here. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God, but he questions that. And might I just point out that this is often how the tempter works in our own lives. He questions something, or he makes someone question something that is true, that is about us, in an attempt to provoke us on a certain course. We're quite susceptible to that sort of thing, but Jesus is not. Satan comes to him and he questions his identity. If you're really the Son of God, when he knows that he is, because Satan again is a liar, if you're really the Son of God, command that these stones may be made bread. You might wonder, what's the big deal about Jesus turning stones into bread to feed himself if he's hungry. But you see, that would have been an abuse of power. It would have been a misuse of Jesus' power and authority for him to use that power for his personal benefit. We often in our present day and age have the perspective, the mindset that the ends justify the means, but Jesus does not give in to that sort of carnal thinking, that sort of wisdom of this world It would have been to abuse his power for him to make bread out of the stones. Now, think about this for just a minute. I've been meditating upon this fact for a few weeks now. Jesus turns water to wine at the request of his mother to benefit other people. Jesus multiplied loaves and fishes to feed thousands of people on multiple occasions. Jesus heals the sick. He gives the blind their sight. He gives the deaf their hearing. He cleanses lepers. He raises up the paralyzed. He walked on water to comfort his disciples as they were tossed to and fro in a ship on the Sea of Galilee. 
Jesus displayed power over creation all the time, but in every single one of those events, Jesus does that not for his own personal good, but for the good of his children. And so while it was fine for him to turn water to wine to help others, it would not have been fine for him to turn stones into bread despite having that power it would have been an abuse of authority. And so he tells that wicked one to go on and to stop. And so he absolutely rejects that wicked one in this temptation, this solicitation from him. Now, how does Jesus do this? Remember, the point is how we can use the Word of God to stand against the forces of darkness in the world. Jesus simply says unto him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. What does Jesus say? He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3 that man shall not live by bread alone. So Jesus defeats that wicked one by quoting the word of God. The second temptation also involves an abuse of power. This is verses 5 through 7. But in addition to that, it includes reckless behavior and reckless actions. Specifically, Satan carries Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and, daring to quote the Bible, attempts to get Jesus to throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple. Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, Now, as far as the pinnacle of the temple, some envision this as the pinnacle, the main A-frame over the temple, but others have argued that this would be one of the towers on the wall surrounding the temple. If that were the case, this is as high as 180 feet in the air. And there on the pinnacle of the temple, the wicked one says to him, If thou be the Son of God, again questioning his identity, which he knew, he knew his identity, He questions his identity, and he says, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. Now, it's interesting that the first time Satan comes to him, he capitalizes on his hunger, and Jesus responds with the Bible. So what does the wicked one do? He quotes a passage of the Bible as well. This particular passage is found in Psalm 91, verses 11 through 13. He quotes the Bible in an attempt to justify this temptation. Oh, the Lord said in the Psalms that he'll give his angels charge concerning you, lest at any time you dash your feet against a stone, just throw yourself down. You know that you're going to be okay. What would be the problem in that? It would be to live in such a reckless way as to tempt God. And so what does Jesus say in response to him? Again, he quotes the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the Scriptures. Jesus, citing Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16, says, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Satan, do not tempt me. And at the same time, Jesus could be saying, I'm not going to do that because that would be to tempt God, and I am not going to tempt the Lord my God. Now, sometimes we hear the concept of living by faith presented in such a way that encourages recklessness. Folks will say, be careful for nothing, just trust in the Lord, and everything's going to be all right. Well, that's true. But at the same time, it's also true that we don't need to tempt the Lord our God. We don't need to tempt God. We don't need to put ourselves intentionally so 
in danger. We don't need to throw caution to the wind and live in a foolish way either. We trust God. We are careful for nothing, but at the same time, we live in respect and fear towards him and his creation. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Verses 8 through 10, the third temptation is the worst. In this, Satan attempts to cause our Lord to worship him in exchange for the kingdoms of this world. You might consider this an offer of global rule as a trade of allegiance. Now, that might seem odd for that wicked one to offer to someone, but remember the 73rd Psalm, which says that wicked people often find themselves in positions of power because they are not like God's people that suffer chastening and affliction. 2 Corinthians says that the devil is the god of this world. He isn't a god, but he behaves as if he's one, which was one of his sins from the very beginning of time. The Lord called him the prince of this world in John chapter 12 and verse 31, so he does have authority in this world. How does Jesus answer him? Satan carries him into exceeding high mountain and shows him the kingdoms of this world and the glory of them and said, All things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus says unto him, Get thee hence, Satan. Get out of here. Leave. For it is written, Thou shalt worship and serve the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. What does Jesus do? For the third time, he quotes the word of God. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only thou shalt serve. Do you know what passage of Scripture he quotes? Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. Now, by the way, as a side note about this, Jesus does have power over all kingdoms. He rules all nations with the rod of iron. He has a kingdom that consumes all the kingdoms of this world, and he has this through obedience and submission to his Father. He rules and reigns today. That was the long way. That was the difficult way, but that, as it is so many times, was the right and the good way. Now, as we bring our broadcast today to a close, I want to share with you four simple takeaways. Number one, while we can learn from this, the ultimate point is not so much how we can defeat that wicked one, but how Jesus defeated that wicked one in our stead. We're not the hero of Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is the hero of Matthew chapter 4. Number two, Jesus began his personal ministry with baptism, like we all should. We should be baptized if we believe. And immediately, Satan attacked him. When we begin to follow Christ, this pattern will apply to us as well. Satan will attack us when we live faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember it being said by old preachers when I was a little boy, don't think that your life will be roses after you choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. No, when you are drawn to him and you feel compelled to follow him, and in your mind you decide, I am going to take up my cross and be baptized in his name, you can expect troubles to follow you, but the peace that passeth all understanding and the providence of God is so much greater than the problems that you will experience that it is always worth it. Number three, when that wicked one solicited Jesus, when he tried to sell these temptations to Jesus, Jesus used the word to defeat him. And again, this shows us how the sword of the Spirit the Word of God is our offensive weapon in the armor of God. When we are attacked by temptations or the forces of darkness, our weapon is the Word of God as well. And then number four, and lastly for today, 
because our beloved Savior Jesus was tempted in all points like as are we, but he yielded not, we can come to him for grace to help in our times of need. Why? Because he knows what life in this world is like. He experienced every type of temptation that could be given to a person, and yet at the same time, he never gave in, he never lusted to do that which was evil. And so having this great Savior, this great high priest which is passed into the heavens, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest, Hebrews 4.15, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received today's broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.